We are, like I said, continuing our series called, Did God Really Say That? And we started last week uh, looking at the, the question, uh, God won't give you more than you can handle. And the whole idea behind this series is there's some things that we teach, there's some things we believe, there's some things that we tell, that we, give good, we think we're giving good advice uh, we think we're speaking on behalf of God, and God actually never said that. And we have all sorts of these things uh, that we say uh, or we think God said uh, all the time. And how do we identify what God said, what God didn't say? And so we looked at God won't give you more than you can handle last week and talked about how um, you're either coming out of a difficult season in your life, probably going into a difficult season, uh, or you're in the middle of one right now, and that's, that's human life. And you'll see in a second that today is really a part B of where we started last week. But in order to kind of get us warmed up to this idea of what did God say, let's just, let's start with an easier test. Uh, who said it, Donald Trump or Buddy from Elf? Uh, you only have two choices, okay? So... So here we go. If you, uh, what's that? <laughs> okay. I am somebody with a lot of heart. Who said it? Donald Trump or Buddy? Okay, let's see your hands if you think Donald Trump said it. Okay, let's, Buddy the Elf. Okay, uh, the majority was right. Donald Trump said that. Okay. You did it. Congratulations. World best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody. It's great to be here. Donald Trump or Buddy the Elf? Anybody think, anybody think Donald Trump? Got a couple. Uh, Buddy the Elf uh, was the one that said that one. Francisco. That's fun to say. Francisco. Francisco, Francisco. Buddy the Elf? Anybody? Donald Trump? That one was uh, maybe a bit more obvious. Our movement is a movement built on love. Donald Trump? Buddy the Elf? Donald Trump. Uh, the majority is doing really well here. You sit on a, on, a, on a throne of lies. You sit on a throne of lies. Donald Trump? Buddy the Elf? Ah, you guys are, you guys are good. I'm waving to the people back there so small I can't even see them. <laughs> Donald Trump? Buddy the Elf? Man, I thought I was going to get, I, was, I thought we were going to trick somebody in that. That was Donald Trump. Um, have you seen these toilets? They're ginormous. <laughs> Donald Trump? No? Donald Trump? No takers on that one? Okay. <laughs> Buddy the Elf. I told you that we would be saying Merry Christmas again. Donald Trump? Buddy the Elf? Man, that was Donald Trump. You guys are, you guys are good. Um, let's see here. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. <laughs> Buddy? It's actually Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh. Okay, last one. 
That was a big water job, right? I kept it coming in and going back. <laughs> Buddy the Elf? Uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, that was, that was a Donald Trump quote. Um, okay, no, I'll do one more. You, ha- you have to love people, and if you love people, it's such a big responsibility. Buddy the Elf? Donald Trump? Man, you guys are, you guys are good. That was Donald Trump as well. A um, few of you got tricked on a couple of them. Most of you guys knew who said that. So when we have a thought, when we hear advice, when somebody says uh, something like, God won't give you more than you can handle, how do we actually begin to understand what God said, what he did? And obviously, uh, we have to know uh, the Bible. We have to know the Word of God. And that's why every Sunday when we gather together, uh, we, we take a look at the Word of God. Uh, that's why at SunWest we encourage you to spend daily time in God's Word uh, and, and journaling and listening to what God is saying to you because uh, we think it's critically important if we're going to orient our, our lives around God and where He's leading us uh, that we understand what He's saying to us. Uh, also why the Hearing God seminar that's happening on October 28th uh, is an important part of who we are uh, and how we are uh, going to move forward together as we follow God uh, together. So just to recap, where, does this, where did the title come from? In the beginning, uh, the Genesis story where the we revival starts, you know, God kind of created everything and uh, people were living in harmony with God, with others, and everything was working as it should be. And then, a, and then Satan comes in the form of a serpent, uh, the shrewdest of all the wild animals, and he tempts Eve. And he questions what God said because God gave a very specific uh, set of instructions to Adam, uh, to Adam and Eve, and that instruction was not to eat the tree from the no- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not to eat any fruit from that tree in the middle of the garden. And so the serpent comes and creates some doubt, and he says, uh, "One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden?" And so you see, the tactic of the enemy is first to create doubt. Did God really say that? And I think that tactic remains today. We keep wondering, did God really say that? Does God really care about this detail of my life? Uh, Does God really care about this decision, this ethical piece, what's happening in our government, what's happening in my relationships? Does God really have something to say about that? And the other thing that the enemy did is he presents a half-truth. And you'll notice it kind of sounds like something God did say. God said, don't eat of this specific tree. The serpent comes and kind of twists it and says, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from what? Any of the tree. Any of the trees in the garden. So it's a truth, kind of. It it's almost sounds like something God did say. And often when we come off course, it's not because of some radical thing that is totally opposite to something God said, but it's, it's just a slightly twisted truth. That when we follow that trajectory or that thought far enough, it leads us away from where God is trying to lead us in our lives. And so that's uh, where we're going in this series. And so this morning, we are looking at the lie, everything happens for a reason. Did God really say that? Everybody say, everything happens for a reason. How many of you guys have been told that? Let's be honest, how many of you guys have said that to somebody? I've said, I've said that. Don't worry, everything happens for a reason. 
You know, so a few weeks ago, I was walking around in my house, and I stubbed my toe, and it hurt really, really bad. And then I just asked God, God, why, why did that happen to me? What, 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 was the, what was the purpose on the toe stubbing? I need, to, I need to understand the lesson you're trying to teach me. And the, the reason that might have happened was because I got size 13 feet, and sometimes I forget how big they are. That might be the reason. Or I was at one of our staff members' house for breakfast the other day, and, uh, and I stood up and I cranked my head on the corner of their hood fan in their oven, uh, you know, and I didn't stop and wonder, God, why, why did that happen? I know why it happened, because the hood fan was about 5 foot 10, and I'm 6 foot 1, and I just didn't see it there, right? That's, that's the reason why that happened. So those aren't the type of things we're ha- we're, I'm talking about right now. What I'm talking about is, is the idea that, that there is, that God is orchestrating every part of your life for some reason that you don't maybe know at that moment. And it sounds like a truth, and there is elements of truth to it, uh, but it's a half-truth uh, that can lead us uh, somewhere I don't think we want to go. So that's what we're looking at this morning. And this is reflected when people say, I can't see what good could come out of this. You know, they're wrestling in their life. Like I'm trying, I had someone say to me the other day, I'm trying to figure out what God is teaching me uh, through this experience. And God can teach us through all sorts of experiences, which we'll talk about in a second. But it's a, it's a slight shift from did God actually put you through that experience to teach you a lesson. Everything happens for a reason. And so we're going to move through a lot of pieces this morning, and uh, so I hope, it, I hope it makes sense. Uh, let me just say, because I'll probably forget to say later, uh, we did a series a couple of years ago called If God is Good, uh, and it, it was a four-week series, I believe, uh, that dives into some of this content quite a bit further, uh, and so if you have more questions, I encourage you to go back into our sermon vault on the, online, and you can find more info on it. So everything happens for a reason. So where does this idea come from? Bad things happen to me. How many would agree with that? Bad things happen to you? You hit your head, you hit your head on a hood fan? Anybody else? Um, stub your toe. Something more severe. Bad things happen to all of us. God is all-powerful. Do you believe that's true? I believe that's true. I believe the Bible testifies to that, that God is the uncreated being, and he is the creator. He is the powerful one. He is, he is sovereign. Um, and God is good. You guys believe that? God is good. So what happens when we, when we A plus B plus C, we, if we're not careful, can lead us to this thought, that God, because he's all-powerful, has caused everything to happen, and that everything in my life has a good purpose, because God caused it, because God is good. So A, B, and C are all true. Uh, but does that necessarily mean we end up at D? Is, is that the result of that line of thinking? And you'll see when you kind of read through Scripture that this is this not a new question. This is a question that is wrestled with throughout Scripture. And uh, there was this idea in the, uh, especially as you read through the Old Testament, this idea of retributive justice. And it's very similar to an idea of karma. And many of us believe uh, we don't say we believe in karma, but we believe in the kind of idea of karma and how we understand God and how God works in our lives. If you're familiar with the story of Job, uh, one, scholars would say that, that that's the oldest uh, text that we have in our scripture. It was written the earliest. 
the main question that, that happens in Job, what, what Job is trying to answer is basically why does bad things happen to good people? And Job has some friends in that story, and his friends are trying to kind of convince Job that the reason that all this stuff is happening to you, and, and if you know the story, Job lost everything. Uh, he, he was wealthy. He lost all his wealth. He lost uh, his, his property and his possessions, his family. And, and so he has a few friends that are basically going to Job saying, you know, you got to figure out what you did wrong. You got to figure out why the bad stuff is happening in your life. And once you can figure that out, then, then God will bless you. And the whole piece of Job is basically that retributive justice or karma is not how God works. Is there justice? Yes. But does everything that, be- everything that happens in your life that is negative or bad, is that some kind of punishment for something that you are unaware of? No. And for sure, not necessarily. And, and this is a, a question that we see in John chapter 9. You see, the disciples ask this question. And, and your whole Old Testament is basically based on this idea of wrestling with being good people versus God's judgment. You see the Israelites uh, wrestling over and over again, trying to live in a good way so that God can bless them and they can be the people that God called them to be. God wants them to live in a, in a certain way. Uh, and at times God actually brings things into the, the lives of the Israelites in the form of, uh, of discipline and punishment. Uh, but this direct line between everything bad is actually happening to me because God caused it to happen is not a completely biblical idea. So John chapter 9, you have the disciples who have this understanding of God, this understanding of uh, retributive uh, justice, and this is what we see. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? So the assumption, you'll see here, was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? That's, that's automatically where the mind went. Why was this man born blind? There must be something. There must be some kind of sin in his life, some kind of sin in his parents' life that actually caused this to happen, uh, caused this blindness to happen. And so again, you see this, this mindset, this karma mindset, that if you do bad, bad things happen. If you do good, good things will happen. This was, this was the understanding of the disciples up to this point. And how many of us have, have felt this? I must, I must not love God enough. I must not have enough faith. I must uh, have made some, you know, why is God doing this to me? You know, we, we, we wonder those questions. We ask questions like that. But this is Jesus' response. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. This happened so the power of God could be seen him, in him. I think in the international translation, it, it says that the glory of God could be revealed. And I think there, there's an important principle here that any situation that you have been in, anything that's happened to you, holds the potential for God's glory and power to be revealed. So even before we get to the causation of something, uh, what has happened to you actually holds potential. Even the worst parts of your story hold potential. The things that you wonder, could anything ever good come of this, and we'll come back to this in a second, uh, hold the potential to actually point people to the beauty, glory, and power of God. 
So we know that God does cause things to happen. And, and so when we say everything happens for a reason, we need to understand that God, the all-powerful being that created all things, causes things to happen all the time. He created this world uh, when he spoke a word. But he's not the only cause. You cause things to happen. When I stubbed my own toe, that, I, I caused that. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't point the finger at God and say, God, Why? Why did you put that stove there? And you respond by saying, you put that stove there. Uh, but we all make decisions that, that actually affect us. So you cause things to happen. Decisions that you have made have had effect on you, positive or negative. Others cause things to happen. There's, there's been other people in your lives that have made decisions that have impacted you and affected you, yes? Some of them, great. You, you have people in your lives that have made decisions for you that have greatly benefited and blessed you. Absolutely. You have people in your life that have greatly hurt you. There's satanic and spiritual forces of evil in this world. And it talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. That, that there is a very real enemy to God and to you that causes things to happen. There's natural and systematic causes you know, if I climb to the top of this building and jump off, I don't blame God. Uh, he created a system, a natural system, and gravity is part of that. And so I can't blame God. Uh, so the, God created the gravity, but it was a God's fault that I jumped off the building? Uh, no. And so there's natural pieces that uh, have an effect on our lives. So bad things happen to me. God is all-powerful. God is good. I don't think we need to end at D. And so let's, let's talk a little bit just about this idea that God is all-powerful. And it's true, but that does not mean that God is all-controlling. God is all-powerful does not mean that God is all-controlling. How many of you who are parents feel like you are more powerful than your child? Brent, that's a lie. Uh, that, it's not true for many of you, but anybody feel like you're more powerful than your child? You know, you got young kids, probably you're more powerful than your child. I know for a fact that I can beat all three of my kids up. I, I, I also know for a fact that that window of dominance is quickly closing. Uh, but I am more powerful than my kids, absolutely. How many of you feel like you can control your child? Amazing. I need the secret. So, Do you recognize that power and control are two very different things? You guys see that? Being all-powerful does not mean that God is all-controlling. Uh, last year, one of my sons, I, I won't name them because... Uh, I find my sons start to get a bit of a reputation that aren't completely true. I sometimes characterize them in certain ways to help my sermon. So uh, <laughs> one of my sons, I'll let you guess who he is. He might be the son that is currently sitting in my office because he refuses to be a part of kids' church. Uh, but <laughs> I, I went in during worship and said, you want to go back to kids' church yet? He said, no. He's like, I just feel bored. I said, it's more boring than sitting in my office all by yourself. And uh, he's like, yep. 
Um, and just so you know, that's not true. Our kids' ministry is amazing. Um, there's, other, there's other things going on there that have absolutely nothing to do with kids' church. Anyways, this, this particular son, we went to parent-teacher interviews last year. And, uh, and we sat down and his teacher says, Silas, do you want to tell your dad? Uh, or Luke or Joel. Uh, what happened? Do you want to tell your dad what happened today? And he gets all red and kind of looks down at the ground. And uh, and I said, "What ha- you know? What happened?" And he wouldn't tell me. So the teacher proceeded to tell me that uh, they were working in groups. Silas decided he didn't want to work in a group, uh, and uh, and he kind of was in the corner by himself. And uh, the teacher was asking him to do something, and he refused to do it. And and eventually, he just kind of took his scribbler notebook and he starts ripping it to shreds and throwing it all over the classroom. And I, I said to him, I was like, what, what happened? Like, why would you do that? And his response was, I don't like the number eight. <laughs> they, they, were, they were working on the number eight, and I guess, guess him and the number eight just didn't get along very well. Those two circles are tough to, tough to figure out. And, uh, and so we went home that day, and, and I said, you need to, you need to write your, le- your teacher an apology uh, for how you behaved. Uh, we're we're going to work out together. You're going to write it down. And he refused to write it down. And so this was after supper. You know, we've had a few kind of dad and son meetings around the supper table, and uh, and he sat there refusing to write anything for two hours. It's getting close to bedtime. And, uh, and I said, you're not going to bed until you write this letter. And I felt like I was, and then so he finally picks it up, and I could tell he was just breaking down. I was like, yes, this is, this is my dad moment, so patient. I'm so patient, I'm melting his heart, and he's just responding to me. And, and, he, and he grabs the pen, and he grabs the pen like this like all dramatic, and then he goes, what do I do? I, eventually I did get him to write it, but, uh, but I know that even though I am more powerful than my kids, I, can, I could grab Silas's hand and I could make him write that letter. I could do it, but I choose not to do it. Why? Because there's something greater than control that is governing my power. My power does not exist to control. My power actually exists to help lead my son because I love my son and I want him to grow. And so there's, there, there's this idea of love and relationship that is more, uh, that is governing the action of a healthy parent to their child. And when you think about unhealthy parents, let's just think about that for a second. Unhealthy parents often, they're more powerful than their kids, but maybe they have insecurity or they have fear. And what happens when you combine power with insecurity and fear? 
It's a, it's a bad recipe. Uh, and I had a few comments around that that I, I'm just going to leave out. But you can imagine that, that's, that, that that is a bad recipe. And so let me ask you this. Is God, the creator of all things, is he insecure? Does God use his power to compensate for insecurity? Is God afraid? The Bible says a perfect love casts out fear. The Bible also says that God is love. His essence is love. So if God is, his essence is love and God is not afraid, that God does not have insecurity in his being, how does a God like that operate in his full power? I believe that God created us out of a desire for relationship, and relationship necessitates choice. Relationship necessitates freedom. Relationship necessitates providing the environment where evil and bad things can and do happen. Because again, God's purpose was not to control. God's purpose was to love. And so his power yields to his essence, which is love. Let's think about the story of Joseph for a second. If you're familiar with the story, uh, you'll, you'll know some of these pieces. Uh, if you're not, I'm just going to give a quick review, and you can find it in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. It's a long, drawn-out story. But here, here's a couple highlights. Joseph has a dream that he's going to rule over his brothers. His brothers didn't like that very much, so his brothers threw him in a well. It's not surprising. Uh, I see how my kids treat each other. I could, this is a very real possibility. Um, <laughs> let's throw him in a well. So they throw him in a well. And then one of the other brothers thinks, well, we don't want to leave him there to die. And, and somebody comes kind of along the road and said, let's sell him. Let, let, let's, let's sell him as a slave to somebody else. So that's a great idea. Okay, so they sell him to uh, Potiphar, who was a high official in, for Pharaoh. So Joseph kind of grows up in Potiphar's household. Uh, Potiphar's wife ends up uh, lying and being deceitful and tells Potiphar a lie about Joseph. And then so Joseph gets thrown in jail. While he's in jail, he meets other people there. He meets the Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer. I, mean, I don't know what a cup bearer is, uh, you know, I guess they didn't want to carry their own cups, which makes a lot of sense. You know, sometimes I'm walking around the house with a cup and I just get really annoyed that I have to carry this thing. I'd be like, if, man, if I had someone that could just bear this cup for me, it would be fantastic. <laughs> Silas, come here. I have a cup for you. <laughs> no, I can't make you do that? Okay. Uh, anyways, so the, the cup bearer was actually to test the cup in case there was poison in the, in, in the cup. Someone was trying to kill Pharaoh. But anyways, the cupbearer's there, the baker's there, and Joseph interprets a cupbearer's dream when they're in prison. And, you know, there's this conversation, remember me when you go back to Pharaoh. Uh, but the cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh, he gets out of prison, and the cupbearer forgets Joseph. So he stays in prison even longer. Pharaoh eventually has a dream, and then the cupbearer finally remembers that Joseph is in prison. He says, oh, there's this guy that can help you interpret your dream. His name's Joseph. And then so... Joseph is taken out of prison, interprets Pharaoh's dream, uh, and because of that, now becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. Meanwhile, there's a famine going on uh, for the Israelites, and 
people are coming to Egypt to try and get food and supplies during the famine. Joseph's brothers show up, and they recognize there's this point where Joseph reveals himself to them, and they're afraid of Joseph. And this is the conversation that happens. And this is, I think, one of the two texts that we're going to look at uh, where this idea of everything happens for a reason comes from. Then his brother came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? Then he says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Now, insert a W there, now don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So let me ask you this question. Who threw Joseph in the well? Or was it God? Did God throw Joseph in the well? Did God sell Joseph to be a slave? Did God accuse Joseph of sleeping with Potiphar's wife? Did God throw Joseph in jail? Did God forget about Joseph when Joseph was in jail? Fascinating question because you, you look at this text and you say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So did God intend it? Did God cause it? Did God make it happen? I think it's clear when we look at Scripture and we, when you look at the story that God didn't make that happen. But yet there's this truth that influences this phrase of everything happens for a reason. And here, here's the truth is that God's intentions are greater than your circumstances. God's intentions are greater than your circumstances. God's intentions are greater than the intentions of the enemy. God's intentions are greater than the intentions of whoever tried to hurt you. God's intentions are greater than your own destructive decisions. This is part of the, the, the beautiful reality and the good news of God being all powerful but also all loving. And so for the follower of Jesus, let me suggest this, that the cross is the paradigm for the follower of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you have time, what, what is a great exercise is to go through the book of Acts. So the New Testament church launches, you see these, these wonderful sermons in the book of Acts, and, and there's a whole bunch of them, and you can read through these sermons. And it's fascinating when you kind of read them all together, the types of themes that come out. And let's listen to some of the comments here. Uh, in Acts 2, 23... And you, with the help of wicked men, put him, who is Jesus, to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Amen. I want you to think about this question. Who, who crucified Jesus? Acts 3, 15. You disown the Holy and Righteous One and ask that a murderer be released. They're talking about Barabbas. And then you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. Acts 4. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth 
whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Acts 7. Verse 52. Was there ever prophet your ancestor did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Acts 10, 39. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 13. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Then they had him carried out all that was written about him. They took him down from the cross and nailed him and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. You'll see if you read through the book of Acts that people under the influence of the enemy of Satan were the ones that crucified Jesus. Yet miraculously, the cross became the avenue in which God was going to accomplish bringing salvation to the world. The cross is the paradigm when we're a follower of Jesus in which we need to look at everything negative that happens in our life. And I know we can get caught up in talking about causes and who caused what and how did this happen to me. Uh, and most of the time, those are, or some of the time, those are mysteries that we won't ever understand. But what we do know is that Jesus, God himself, subjected himself to the decisions of people. An all-powerful God, so understand this, an all-powerful God that created the world, comes in the form of flesh, subjects himself to experience pain at the hands of his creation, and that moment actually becomes the point in which God propels his plan. cross is a paradigm for the follower of Jesus. When we were in pre-service prayer this morning, um, and if anybody wants to join us, 9.15, every Sunday morning you can come. We'll pray together. I, I asked the different groups that were praying together this morning, what are some, what do we sense God saying or pointing out are some things that people have experienced, some bad things they've experienced in their lives that they've actually blamed God for? So if few people felt like there's people coming this morning that are blaming God for the death of a family member. There's people that are here this morning that could be blaming God for the loss of job or finances. Blaming God for a prodigal child. Uh, one of our folks that was praying had a picture of a woman that was abused and and the comment was that this person is struggling with the fact that no one protected her, including God. Divorce from a kid's perspective, someone else felt. Blaming God for the divorce that your parents went through. Depression, anxiety, infertility. Growing up with not great parents, 
what is the thing in your life that's happened to you that you point the finger at God and, and you think he caused it to happen? Because you've bought into this lie that everything happens for a reason and God is all-powerful. And so in some twisted way, God made this happen to you so that he could bring about his purposes. And that's just actually grown a heart of frustration and bitterness and anger towards God. And God wants you to know this morning, I believe that it was not God that did that to you. But that doesn't mean that God, just like the cross, can't bring resurrection out of crucifixion. Here's the second verse where we get this idea from. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Probably the most obvious verse that uh, someone who knows their Bible would think of when the idea of uh, everything happens for a reason. That God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. This is probably one of the most complex verses to translate in the entire New Testament. If you go to the New King James Version, they translate it this way. And we know that all things work together for the good, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the subject in this verse can be God, that God works all things together. The subject in this verse in the Greek, because they're, the uh, they're, they're in the same form, can be all things, that all things are working together. And depending on how you look at this verse would depend on how you feel about the things that have happened in your life. But there's another problem in this verse, this idea of working together. So either God is working together with all things, or all things are working together, God is using all things. And I think that is more accurate of what we see in Scripture. But I think that even misses the point of what it is saying here in Romans chapter 8. Tim Geddard, who's a New Testament scholar, uh, comments on this, this verb that is working together in the context of Romans 8. Let me read for you some of the, the pieces of Romans 8. So in Romans 8, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the, one of the, one, by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from bondage and decay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. Everybody say groaning. The whole creation has been growing as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And then you read on, it says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, followers of Jesus, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to subject uh, of sonship and redemption. And it goes on, it says, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And, and so what Romans 8 is describing, that there's creation that is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to actually step into their identity. That us ourselves have, are inwardly groaning that we were created for a purpose that we haven't yet lived up to. The Spirit of God himself inside of us is groaning 
for what, he, for what God wants to see accomplished on this earth. And you almost get this idea, as in the pains of childbirth, that God is working towards something, and even though he's all-powerful, he's not just controlling it or making it happen. Why? Because he's actually looking to work together with the sons and daughters of God for what he wants to do in this world. So you get to Romans 8, 28. And what I was saying was, uh, Tim Gettert suggests that Romans 8, 28, in light of that context and in light of the Greek, should be, should be read this way. In all things, God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. In all things, God works together with those, not with the things, but with people to bring about what is good in this world. That God's plan from the very beginning was actually to co-partner with us, his image bearers, to be about what he wanted to be about in this world. And so I believe the invitation out of Romans 8, the invitation from this all-powerful God who is in his essence as love, is actually to respond to God in relationship to whatever's happened in your life. And when we choose to actually blame God for what's happened instead of partnering with God, we're actually choosing to be a victim and not a son or daughter of God. So I don't know your story, but I know that God wasn't the one that abused you. I know God wasn't the one that actually caused that death for your family member. I know that God is the one who, in his power, in his sovereignty, actually put that aside to become human, to take on the cross, because his guiding essence is love. And this is a God who wants to co-partner with you and I, in spite of what has happened in your life, to bring about the good he wants to bring in this world. As long as you operate in a victim mindset and blame God, you will never step into your identity to partner with God in what he wants to do. So you can go through life blaming God, but you'll always keep God as a distance. You'll always be bitter towards him. You'll always be angry towards him. Or you can recognize that God is more powerful than any of the circumstances that happen in your life. And if you choose to, you can become his son or daughter and partner with him in that whatever has happened to you can actually be the doorway to resurrection, the doorway to hope. And how cool is it that often people, when something terrible has happened to them, that's the exact place that God uses them to bring hope to other, to other people's lives. It happens all the time. Often if you were, you know, if someone struggled with an addiction, you were an alcoholic. Now God uses you to actually help other alcoholics. If, if you have experienced the loss of a child, some, often that person ends up feeling called to bring hope to somebody else who has lost a child. If you continue to stay in your place of being a victim, you'll never step into the destiny as a son and daughter of God. So what is it that's happened to you that God is saying, don't just be a victim, don't point the finger at me, Forget who caused it or why it happened because you're, you're probably not going to figure that out on this side of, the, side, of, side of heaven and say, God, I am going to choose to partner with you believing that you're, all, that you're all powerful, that you are good, and that this cross that I have to bear is actually the place you're going to bring me through to help, to help bring resurrection and hope and healing to other people in this world. I'm going to invite you to stand with me.
Lord, we recognize this morning that many of us have believed this, this lie that, you know, everything happens for a reason, and the lie even behind that is that you have actually caused everything to happen in our lives. And there's some people in this place that are bitter, that are angry, that are pointing the finger at you. And Lord, that posture is actually presenting them or preventing them from experiencing the full life and freedom and call that you have on their lives to be a son and daughter of God and to partner with you in what you want to do in this world. Lord, we thank you. In John 11, we see that you are a God that stoops down and you grieve and you weep with us. Lord, there's tragic things that have happened to individuals in this room, and I thank you that you are a God that's not as far away, but you are close like we learned last week, that you are present, that you are in the boat with us. And I pray that we would not throw you out of the boat, Lord, but we would invite you closer. We would recognize that you are God with us despite what has happened, and that we could say whatever this person or this thing intended for my harm, God in your power, in your love, in your redemptive ability can use for his purposes and that purpose is for the saving of many lives. We pray that every person, whatever cross they're bearing, Lord, would, that that cross, just like your cross, becomes a symbol of hope, that our crosses would become a symbol of hope for people that don't know what to do with what's happened in their life. So we give those things to you, Lord, and we just ask that you would redeem them, that you would use them, and that we would co-partner with you in what you want to do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts, it says over and over again, like you heard, that this happened. God didn't do it, but this happened. But the result was the resurrection of the Son of God. Is there anybody that needs resurrection hope this morning? Is there anybody that needs the cross in your life to actually turn into the proclamation of hope? I'm going to invite our prayer teams forward. And I, I would invite you to move from a posture of pointing the finger at God, if that's you, of blaming God. Um, it's great Doubts are good. Questions are good. You know, we don't have all the answers on this side of heaven. But sometimes those lack of answers put us in a position of pointing the finger at God and then becoming victims. And God is saying, I'm inviting you into sonship. I'm inviting you into daughtership. I'm inviting you to live out the purpose for which you were created. And I'm going to invite the band. Uh, they're just going to sing. You're going to sing that song, Mare, okay? Uh, the one you just led. Uh, you're going to sing that bridge a few times. And as Mary is singing the bridge, I, I would like to invite you just to sit, stand prayerfully for a moment and say, is there something that I've been operating as a victim of that has actually prevented me from walking in my identity? And is there a place where I need to actually just acknowledge that to... The Bible uses the word repentance, which just means to turn away from going that direction and actually turn towards God and say, God, I'm not going to throw you over the boat anymore. I'm not going to blame you anymore. I don't understand everything that's happened in my life or why it's happened, but I want to choose to partner with you to bring about good in my life and the life of others. I'm not going to live out of being a victim anymore. Uh, and as we sing that song, and, the God, and if God is stirring that in your heart, I would just invite you 
to respond to God, to come forward, to, to come to one of our prayer folks. We'd just like to pray for you. You don't even have to say anything or share anything, but our, our prayer folks would like to bless you. And so I'm just going to invite our prayer folks to spread out a little bit more than just standing in the corners. Uh, and as we're worshiping in the song again, we just invite you to come forward. And then uh, I'll invite Mary to, to dismiss folks. Yeah. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are working right now in people's hearts to bring about good what the enemy intended for evil. And we just say that we are more than conquerors, as it says in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors. That we have the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead in us. And so we do not have to operate as victims, but we can operate as conquerors, as sons and daughters of the living God who is all-powerful and all-loving. And so, Lord, we put, place confidence in you. We, we understand that you are in the process of spinning things that were intended for evil to bring about good, to bring your kingdom to earth. And, Lord, I just, I grieve with those that have experienced evil at the hands of others or their own choices or the hands of the enemy. And, Lord, we recognize that you grieve with them and you invite them to repurpose that, to repurpose that towards, for you and for your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that that would happen. We pray that our wounds would be test, would be, would testify to your goodness and your healing in our lives. In Jesus' name.